I'm sitting on the giant wheel, the Riesenrad, in the Vienna Amusement Park, Prater, thinking about how we're going to talk about the future and how we're going to explore ways to get ready to anticipate and manage extreme events. The history of this wheel is quite interesting. It was constructed at the end of the 19th century, like a lot of other major monuments and historical buildings here in Vienna. It was apparently uh, damaged during the Second World War and had to be rebuilt. I think most people, at least in the English-speaking world, know of this giant wheel from the movie The Third Man, which was filmed in 1949, only a few years after this wheel was rebuilt. One of the most famous scenes in that film was an encounter between Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton in one of the carriages on this giant wheel. But strangely enough, if you come here, there's a big exhibition downstairs of the history of it, and not a single mention of that movie anywhere. <laughs> I noticed when I got on that there are several carriages that have tables with tablecloths and settings for, for a nice lunch or a snack, because the carriages, unlike most giant wheels, they're not open. They're closed carriages, a little bit like um, a small railway car. You can apparently book them and have a nice meal while you're moving around, enjoying the scenery of Vienna from above. Now we have left the amusement park and the Riesenrad and moved back to, into the center of Vienna. I'm sitting in Café Diglas, which is just around the corner from my old apartment. So I have a kind of soft spot in my heart for this cafe. I'm having a bit of late breakfast. Late breakfast in Vienna means a nice cup of coffee and a great cake. My cake today is what's called the Kardinalschnitte. Two layers of meringue separated by a layer of coffee-flavored cream. So very delicious. I recommend it highly for a good energetic breakfast. Now, after this wonderful shot of sugar, we're going off to talk about how to anticipate and how to manage extreme events. We'll do this at a place called the House des Mires, which is an aquarium, but a special kind of aquarium. So we'll be back once we get there. Now I'm back in my flat in the center of Vienna on a rainy Saturday afternoon. We were at the House des Mires, but it was too long a line waiting to get in and too much rain coming down to stand in a line. The House des Mires was an interesting case of resilience in action. It was an old flak tower in the center of Vienna from the Second World War. After the war ended, it wasn't possible to destroy this tower because it's a huge, solid concrete tower set in the midst of a bunch of uh, residential apartment houses and offices. 
it was too dangerous to destroy this tower because it would have had to have been destroyed by explosives. So what the city of Vienna did instead was to adapt. They looked at this tower and said, well, what kind of resource does it represent? And they decided it would make an excellent aquarium. (laughs) A little strange shape, but nevertheless, it was turned into an aquarium. And it's a very interesting aquarium, not just an aquarium, it's also kind of a mini zoo as well. Anyway, that issue of the resilience of that flat tower bleeds into the theme that we want to talk about now, which is how to actually anticipate and manage extreme events. The flat tower was a case of managing an extreme event, an extreme event that did not happen because it would have been very extreme if it had been blown up and a lot of damage done, but instead became an aquarium. In other cases, you may be in a situation where you want to be able to control or manage the extreme event, not really prevent it. In general, these extreme events, they always happen, and they can't really be prevented, but sometimes they can be controlled and managed till you can take advantage of them. A good example is you have a forest that you typically, if it grows too thick, then it presents a big fire hazard because the trees are all too close together. This is equivalent to being on a sharp mountain peak in that landscape of events. So it only takes a small trigger, namely somebody who throws away a cigarette and forgets to extinguish it, and it can send the whole system off into raging wildfires like you've seen recently in California and elsewhere. But instead, what we often do, we deliberately burn down part of the forest to provide space for the remaining trees to grow up better and to provide fire break so that you don't have such a great chance of a huge wildfire taking place. So many, many examples of this kind. And you might ask, well, what about us humans? Okay for trees, but humans are a different story. Of course, on the surface, the answer to that question seemed obviously to be no. But in fact, we do exactly that. A good example is health insurance. I come from a state in the U.S., Oregon, which is pretty progressive in general, and they, a few years ago, decided they couldn't wait forever for the federal government to institute some decent health insurance program, so they said, we'll do it ourselves for the residents of our state. So there was a certain amount of money set aside. Planners looked at the long list of all sorts of diseases that might need treatment or health care services, visiting your doctor, annual checkups, and assigned some number, the price of what those services would cost in that state. They then went down this list and more or less prioritized them and said, well, it's very important that everybody have an annual checkup, very important to get treatment for cancer, et cetera. And they went down and added up how much each of these things cost until they got to the level where the money was used up. All of the health issues that were below that line, the state essentially said, well, we can't offer you coverage on that. That meant 
the people who had that, let's say, rare case of something, they weren't going to get coverage. Now, you might think that this would be political suicide, but in fact, it didn't play out that way at all. The people in the state, by and large, accepted the fact that you can't be insured against everything. Even Lloyds of London won't insure you against everything. They were reasonably content with the process. Well, why was that the case? A big part of the answer is because everybody had a voice in making the decision. Everybody could put in their two cents worth and say, you know, I approve of this or I don't like it. So the politicians didn't get any special blowback from drawing that line in the sand. That's a good example. All of these are good examples of what I would call managing or controlling an extreme event not preventing it, because you can't prevent it. There are plenty of examples in the, the business world of companies that started their business as manufacturers of something and discovered as they went along that maybe people didn't want that something so much and that they had to say, how can I reconfigure or reorient my resources to build something that they do want? A good example of that is a company in the U.S. whose original name was Hughes Aircraft, Howard Hughes, a famous American industrialist back in the 1950s, 60s. He started a company to build airplanes. He even built one airplane. But he had a lot of money from the government, the Defense Department, to build airplanes. He was going to build military planes, not commercial planes. So in order to prevent some lawsuits from the government for taking money to build planes and not building any planes. He actually built one plane. He built it out of wood. It was called the Spruce Goose. It flew over Long Beach Harbor in California for, I don't know, half a mile or something to demonstrate that it was a legitimate airplane. Howard Hughes himself piloted the plane. It was the first and last airplane that his company ever built, and the first and last time that it ever flew. So what did his company do? Why was it not an aircraft company? Well, they discovered that the much better business would be to build electronic products for the Defense Department, not airplanes. They had too much competition, but they had all the resources, scientifically and otherwise, to do upmarket industrial-style electronics that the government needed. In connection with what you might do now to build in a little bit of protection or buffering against things like a nuclear holocaust or an electromagnetic pulse, freshwater disappearance, it depends really to a large degree on what I call the unfolding time of the event. How long does it take from the time the event starts until you can't undo it? Now, for a nuclear blast over the U.S. that sets off an electromagnetic pulse, that happens more or less instantly. But still, there are things that you can do, and the governments have done some of these things. You have to shield the critical electronics, and that can be done. You have to shield them by either wrapping the cables in some kind of shielding, or you shield the place where they're housed so that the pulse cannot get there maybe put the equipment underground or things of that kind. But this is very time-consuming and very expensive, and it wouldn't do an individual much good to do that shielding, because what good would it do for you to shield your computer if the Internet has crashed uh, or, or the electricity doesn't work anymore? 
So this is limited protection that might preserve critical infrastructures for management of a country. It's not going to help you much as an individual, at least not in the short term. Now, on the other hand, take something like the disappearance of fresh water. That's something that will unfold on a relatively slow time scale, measured in, let's say, years even. So if you know you're going to have a lot more salt water and you're going to have to clear out the salt, you could start building desalination plants or methods for desalinating the water, even at the level of an individual, something you could use in your home. Now, why not? There's plenty of salt water around even now that could be desalinated. But of course, to do that, it requires energy. You're going to have to have access to could be solar energy, it might be electrical, some kind of energy anyway. Other kinds of X events, we all know climate change is a big X event, but it's also, unfortunately, in a way, it's unfolding too slowly, so people don't pay that much attention to it. They say, well, okay, this is something that's going to happen, you know, 20, 50 years from now. I got to worry about the next 20 minutes, not the next 20 years. People don't have those kind of time horizon, neither do companies. So there's X events for all occasions and for all time scales and for all budgets. And any one of them will cause you huge trouble if you let it actually go until it fully unfolds. Since I published that book in 2012, X events, the actual research and writing probably took place around 2010, 11 so let's say five, six years ago. I continued to gather material whenever I run across something about one or another of these cases that I looked at in that book, you know, I file it away. So I've got some pretty thick folders now, and the reason that they're thick folders is because these things are much more pressing, much more urgent, much more likely to take place now than they were five or six years ago. I'm uh, surprised at how rapidly the background necessary for such an event to happen is actually taking place. And that means in the context of this uh, landscape of events, the plateaus are starting to disappear or at least shrink, and the mountaintops are starting to grow. This is a little scary, to be truthful, when everywhere you look, there's an X event of some kind that had a certain likelihood five, six years ago, and the likelihood is greater now than it was then. The challenge that we're facing now, in many ways, is not so much the X event itself, but the realization of the possibility of such an X event by everyday people. Because my experience is most people are not very keen on thinking too far downstream. And if they do think far downstream and they see some horrible thing that might happen, possibly even catastrophic thing, they have a kind of head in the sand kind of mentality. They say, oh, this is so awful, I don't want to think about it, and therefore it's not there or it cannot happen. Well, it can happen, and it can be a lot worse if you don't think about it than if you do just in the same way of insurance on your life or your house or your car, it could be a lot worse to have a heart attack or a car wreck or have your house burned down if you don't buy the insurance now than if you do. But people just don't seem to get it. So the challenge is how do you educate people to think beyond 
the quarterly report of a company or tomorrow for a uh, individual. I don't know the answer to that, but if I discover it, there'll be another book on the shelf <laughs> explaining it. 